it's basically about the business of writing. And they tell you the stuff they wish that someone had told them when they got started as writers. You know, somebody can be a successful marketer and not necessarily provide a quality product. I'm going to let Moses go because he's frothing at the mouth to talk about this one. (laughs) (laughs) I like writing. I like reading. I like to immerse myself in books. That seems like a pretty good career choice. Oh, you sound terrible. What happened? I'm just kidding. Oh, man. (laughs) And now, pod structured on a Zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon. Adventures in sci-fi public. Sci-fi public. Sci-Fi Publishing, episode 257. I have a guest host today. Sarah Chorn from Bookworm Blues helps me interview Elizabeth Bear. And we will have a giveaway of the Eternal Sky Trilogy, just released through tour by Elizabeth Bear. To enter, subscribe to our newsletter. There will be a link in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. I'm your host, Timothy C. Ward. Once again, I snagged a co-host for an interview that I'm very excited about. Uh, so first, I'd like to introduce her. She is the uh, probably my favorite book reviewer. Um, <laughs> she runs Bookworm Blues. Her name is Sarah, Sarah Chorn. How are you doing, Sarah? I am fantastic. Thank you for having me. Yes, my pleasure. And without further ado, our main guest is Elizabeth Bear. Say hi, Elizabeth. Hi there. Elizabeth just released the final book in her Eternal Sky trilogy. Um, so those are... Uh, Range of Ghosts, Shattered Pillars, and Steelies of the Sky is the one that just came out. Oh, great. And you get to correct my pronunciation of uh, steels <laughs> right off the bat. So that... <laughs> That's quite right. <laughs> um. So I wanted to share a funny story of how I met Elizabeth Bear. Um, it was at ShyCon, and this was at the very end of Saturday, which I drove up just for Saturday. Um, very long day for me, running back and forth between panels to record for the podcast. And I met her after the last podcast or after the last panel, and I think I had like a protein bar, like since breakfast. Um, so I, I was, uh, totally exhausted and I brought, I wasn't sure what kind of books to bring to Worldcon. you know, like who I was going to meet, who I was going to get to sign something for me. And so I had this Clark's world hardcover book collection of short stories thinking, you know, maybe I'll meet someone that's in this book and then I'll be able to get it signed that, you know, most bang for my buck here. And so I see Elizabeth after this panel um, with Mike Cole and Scott Lynch, her boyfriend, and I see her and I, <laughs> I was like, um, hi, uh, would you mind signing my book, please? And um, unfortunately, I hadn't read anything by Elizabeth. So aside from being totally exhausted and probably a little starstruck, um, was just totally speechless. And as she, as she's signing it, I was I looked down at her, um, her flare or whatever the the necklace that you wear at at Worldcon that shows you know your badges of honor and that sort of thing. 
I look down and see one of them says Hugo nomination. So I said, and uh, congratulations on your Hugo nomination, <laughs> which <laughs> which wasn't that year. And uh, she's won two Hugos. So <laughs> in, in hindsight, you know, congratulating her on her Hugo nomination it is almost akin to saying congratulations on writing sentences in English. Um, <laughs> well, it, it, actually, I, I was nominated that year, but it was for uh, for a podcast rather than for fiction. Oh, yes. So you would have gotten away with it if you hadn't just outed yourself. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you guys won, too, didn't you? Yes, we did. Well, there you go. So congratulations. How about that? <laughs> well, thank, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> so uh it's 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 Lynn Thomas. I think she's uh <laughs> she's the source from which all all podcast Hugo nominations roll. So what you have to do is is get her on your show. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> and then the amazing will happen. <laughs> exactly. That's, cool. <laughs> That's my theory anyway. Yeah, some people just have auras that put out greatness. Yeah, I, I, I think Lynn has probably been nominated for, for nine out of the ten things she's done as an editor or a, or a podcaster or, you know, the various other things she does at this point. She just – she attracts Hugo nominations like like um, uh, like like moths to a flame. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. We have a lot of questions about Eternal Sky, but I thought maybe I would ask Sarah – how did how have you encountered or f- first encountered Elizabeth Bear? So my website started about four years ago, and I think I'd been reviewing for maybe a month when someone emailed me and said, um, "You really haven't enjoyed fantasy until you've read Elizabeth Bear's books." And at the time, I was just coming out of college, and so I didn't, I wasn't up to date on anything. So I, I'd never heard of her and I figured, well, what the hell? So I went, I picked up a book from the library and that just kind of ended it. It was uh, it, fantastic. I think, I mean, I think, I think I've read almost everything that you've written now. And I mean, there's some that I've missed still, but it's uh, and that's every a, book's that's better a than the last. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> Yes, Sorry about is. that. <laughs> no, it's, it's a very worthwhile full-time job. I, I enjoy it. There, there aren't honestly many authors that um, can play with words as well as you can. It's just pure art, and I, I love it. I love everything about your books. So there you go. There's my fangirl moment. <laughs> Thank you so much. So, <laughs> you can't you can't see it because this is voice only. But my, I, there are little lip quivery, can fluttery things going on over here. Thank you so much, Sarah. <laughs> You're very welcome. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I started Range of Ghosts a couple days ago, and I'm already like 80 pages in, and I I too am. I think it's incredible. I, I I'm very impressed with your world building and your characters. Uh, you, the way we're introduced to them, just every scene means something, and uh, I, th- I think it's beautiful. I- I'm loving it so far. So I can't wait to read the rest of it. Well, thank you. You know, my I, I got the last book in the mail 
I think a few days before it was released and I still haven't cracked it because I don't want the series to end. It's, <laughs> it's one of those series that it's going to take me forever to read that last book because I don't want it to end. It's that good. So anyway, that's a big compliment for me. <laughs> well, I, uh, I hope you've, uh, you've seen my big news which is that there yes. are going to be more books in this world. So not not necessarily with the, the same characters or the in the same part of the world, but... Yeah, um, but that's exciting. I'm very excited about that. I'm, I'm kind of thrilled, too. My editor likes me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not fired. <laughs> it's always a good feeling, you know. I don't think you'll ever be fired. <laughs> oh, I, I've, I've been dropped by enough publishers at this point that uh, it's it's always nice when somebody actually says, oh, yes, we would like to buy some more books from you. <laughs> because <laughs> there's, there's always that moment of uncertainty where you finish the last thing you have under contract and, and then you sort of start praying. Um, but I've, I've yeah. been very fortunate. I'm having an incredibly good year. Um, I've I've sold two two entirely different series to two entirely different publishers, um, and that's just it's very exciting. I'm employed through 2018, and who can say that these days? That's amazing. I mean, news is just flying from your direction these days. There's always something going on with you, and it's. Quite incredible. I don't know how you keep up with it all. <laughs> yeah. I work a lot. <laughs> someone's yeah. someone's got to keep the dog fed. <laughs> well, I'm more of a science fiction space opera fan. Um, so I was really excited to see about your space opera deal. So congrats on that. I am I will be jumping on that as soon as I can. Well, thank you very much. I'm 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 super excited about it. Early on in my life as a reader, um, C.J. Cherry's books were high on my list of favorites. And the idea of getting to write something like some of her, uh, you know, Merchanter's books um, is is very exciting to me. I unfortunately haven't read her yet, so... It's, it's okay. You have, a, <laughs> you have a treat in store. Um, I think... Uh, I would recommend starting with uh, Down Below Station, which is a political science fiction novel about a space station on the the basically on the edge of a brewing war, uh, and and the the very delicate line they try to walk while the entire galaxy is kind of going to hell all around them. Um, I think, for example, if you were a, a Babylon Five fan you might find a lot to enjoy in that book hmm. and it's it's aged extremely well um also her uh, uh the pride of chinur and associated novels are very high on my list of of awesome books cool well we'll definitely uh try and check those out too let's um let's talk about range of ghosts and kind of introduce this series to readers who haven't read it yet um I love the line that talks about Tamur. Would you call it? Is it Tamur? I am of the opinion that when you're dealing with a fantasy world, uh, I don't 
attempt to control other people's pronunciations too closely <laughs> because I happen to know that I have an absolutely terrible ear for languages and accents. So, <laughs> um, okay. Your, your guess is as good as mine, basically. <laughs> okay. Well, as I'm starting a new book series myself and I've been fascinated with how other authors start, how they introduce characters, how they try and make them sympathetic. Um, if they're not sympathetic, how they try and make them fascinating. And Tamur starts off and there's a line that says, perhaps he was a ghost. And I wonder if you could just summarize this stage of his character arc and kind of how you chose it to set up your series. Well, he's he's had a very bad day. Um, he's uh, he's a, a quite young man at the at the beginning of the books. He's eighteen, nineteen years old. He's been a, a commander of in his brother's army. Um, basically, grew up in uh, grew up in war camps has been raised to be a soldier and a general and the the army that he grew up in has just been utterly destroyed on the battlefield and he himself has been left for dead and when he wakes up grievously injured and all alone and surrounded by the the corpses of his uh allies and enemies uh, he's a little He's he's not in the the best of all possible emotional states, <laughs> I guess would be the way to put it. But he's also, at that point, extremely focused on surviving. He's he doesn't have much much philosophical room in his in his head. He's just trying to get from point A to point B. He's trying to get warm and find something to eat and find some clothing. Uh, he, he fortuitously happens across a, a, another survivor of the battle, a pony. <laughs> um, and uh, that, uh, that pretty much guarantees his survival right there. But it's, it's touch and go for a little while before that. So how does this set up kind of the theme for your series? Well, I, I don't, that depends on what what for any given reader the the theme of the series is. I mean, I know what what I thought I was writing about, um, and while I'm writing, I always discover new things that I I'm writing about. But I I guess that's a difficult question for me to answer. Um, I can you know in in terms of how it sets up his his character arc, he has to go from being this from from being somebody who is very good at one particular thing, which is tactics, basically, to somebody who is in a in a position to make major changes in the world. And some of that is, is expect accepting responsibility, some of it is learning how to how to delegate, um learning to surround himself with people who are competent at various other aspects of things like finding somebody who knows how to run a government um, eventually and also finding people who will, will serve as uh, as political 
advisors and advisors in, in matters of statecraft and, you know, just sort of his, his, I guess his character growth is not the, the typical epic fantasy cathartic character growth where somebody has to, to get over something. It's more like he has to grow into a role that he was, that is not what he was raised to do. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Okay. I appreciate that. That was good. Sarah, let's move on to the number two, the one that you got. The the Eternal Sky trilogy is really unique for quite a number of reasons. But one of the reasons that it really stuck out and, and resonated so much with me is because it's not set in a Western world. And so much fantasy feels like, especially epic fantasy, is the the Europeanist culture with the women with huge dresses and everyone bows to the king and, and all that stuff. And, and yours is definitely not. It's very um, Eastern feeling. And uh, it, it's it's really unique because of that. It has a fantastic feel to it that just hooked me instantly um, for that reason alone. But I'm wondering if, if there was a reason why you decided not to go with the typical Western world. And and that's not even just with this series, but with the um, all the Windracked stars in those books, it's in a, in a Western world with Norse mythology, but it's definitely not your typical Western world. Um, it seems like with most of your books, you kind of take a, a left turn where a lot of authors wouldn't. And I'm wondering what um, what makes you go against the crowd. Well, uh, honestly, it's because I have been a, a fantasy reader my entire life. I'm I'm a I'm a third generation speculative fiction fan on both sides of the family. Um, both of my parents read SF, and both of my grandfathers did. Uh, although very very different. I'm I'm descended from a from a Howard fan on one side and an Asimov fan on the other. So. <laughs> <laughs> I I imagine the dinner table conversations got a little heated sometimes. Um, so I've I've read an awful lot of of epic fantasy of of what what in my less kind moods I sometimes refer to as interminable quest fantasy, um, and it's got to do something really interesting at this point for me to care about it. I I have had it up to my eyebrows with uh, farm boys with a secret destiny. I just, no more, no mas, no mas. Um, so there's, there's that. And there's, there's also the issue of, uh, I have a, a very good friend who happens to be of, of East Indian descent and who is a, a giant nerd. And in a, one of our running gags is that we're distantly related because she's a many times great granddaughter of Genghis Khan through Chagatai Khan. She's a she's a direct male line descendant, in fact. And uh, I am a Cossack on my paternal grandfather's side, so there's probably some Mongol blood back there too. Uh, so you know, our 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 running gag is that we're cousins, and <laughs> I thought. You know, in, in, in part, I wanted to write write her a book. I wanted to write because sometimes she talks about feeling like there's not a lot of space in this very, you know, Western European 
world for her. And it's not even, I mean, it's, it's the, the generic European fantasy setting is basically France and England and, and maybe Germany, you know, with the serial numbers filed off slightly. You don't see Slavic countries. You don't see Nordic countries. You don't see Spain. Um, even Italy is, is, feels a little exotic. And I, I, some of my favorite books have been Asian-themed fantasy. Um, Jessica Amanda Salmonson's uh, Tomoa Gozen books were, were very, very influential on me when I was growing up. They're uh, historical fantasy dealing with a uh, famous female samurai. And they're they're lovely. They're they're quite good reading. Um, I I actually haven't reread them in about fifteen years, so I may maybe the suck fairy has come and visited them. But I have new copies, and now I'm going to read them again. Um, the uh, you know so it it f- seems to me as if at this particular moment in time in science fiction and fantasy, my generation of writers is extremely diverse in terms of uh, race, gender, gender performance, uh, sexuality, religion, basically any, any metric you want to use. The people in the, the people who have started coming into science fiction and fantasy as writers and editors in the past 10 to 15 years are, multicolored and multicultural and come from a lot of different backgrounds. And I think that that is a, a wonderful and vigorous thing. Um, I've been referring to it as the, as the rainbow age of science fiction and it's, it's, it's the wave, you know, it's, I think the way things are going to be for the next 20 years or so. And I think it's extremely exciting there there was a as i was breaking into print there were a lot of discussions about what the next big thing in science fiction is where is the new cyberpunk where is the new new wave and honestly i think that's it the next big thing in science fiction is that everybody brings a different perspective and we all have a lot of new things to talk about well, and I think with uh, with self-publishing and, and stuff, how, how easy it is. Well, not easy, but it's accessible. Publishing is more yes. accessible now than it ever has been before, which totally widens the playing field. And and I think I think you're tapping into that. I guess there's there's yeah. more people writing and publishing and yes, and and even the the traditionally published crowd has gotten a lot more diverse recently. Oh, very much so. I can imagine it might be intimidating for you to research a world that's that different from the one that you and I live in. I mean, I don't know, maybe you've been over to the Far East or whatever, but I can imagine researching it would be hard. Maybe creating a world like that would be challenging. Was it was it any more or less challenging than the world that you've created before? And how did you go about researching for it in in some ways i think the the unfamiliarity was a, was a benefit because as with the the norse fantasy i've written this is not a history that's taught in american schools and and actually i just realized that that's a thing that both the the viking history and 
the the history of the the uh, horse clans, if you will, the 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 steppe empires have in common is that they only appear in standard Western history as the villains. They yeah. they show up long enough to break some stuff and then they leave again. And there's no no indication that there's a there's a culture and a and a heritage and something else going on there besides this reigning lifestyle. So I don't know. Maybe there's maybe there's some deep seated part of me that wants to be contrarian and say, you know, that's not actually the whole truth. Um, but but as I was saying, in some ways, to actually answer the question, in some ways it makes it easier because you don't have to plow through those layers and layers and layers of uh, accrued expectations where, you know, so much of epic fantasy is so profoundly rooted in Lord of the Rings that we don't even think about the fact that there are other ways to do it. And the really entertaining thing is of course that Lord of the Rings is a is a Nordic fantasy. Um, it's it's deeply based in Norse myth, but that's been sort of completely scrubbed out of uh, out out of its its echoes out of out of its imitators. The research was intimidating, but it was not any more intimidating than the research I had to do for the Stratford Man, which is a, a an actual historical fantasy where there's a lot of well-known history that I, I had to get right um, as opposed to a made-up world that was inspired and influenced by Central Asian history. Um, my my concern with the Eternal Sky books was mostly not being a jerk with somebody else's culture. <laughs> oh, yeah. So... <laughs> It's always a good it was, goal. It was an equally, equally, impo- yeah, equally important concern, but and 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 thing to be intimidated by. But it's um, it, it differently intimidating than writing straight historical fantasy. I don't want to get too detailed because I don't want to go too long on it. But I'm wondering if there's a, like certain requirements that you need to have in your preparation before you start a novel um, when it comes to your research. And and maybe specifically for the Eternal Sky, what were some of the things that you had to get down before you could start writing? I every single novel has has been different for me on this front. Um, this particular book started well. The, the the Eternal Sky World started in like. 2005 2006 when I had started you know begun doing some reading up um, just because writers are curious and we tend to chase links um, and and it, basically it's it's a I, I think writing as a career is a way to get a tax deduction for your books uh, for your book <laughs> habit. Um, so i had uh i had written this story called um love among the talus which was published at strange horizons i think in 2006 maybe and uh that was the first thing i ever wrote in what would eventually become the eternal sky world the um and and the character who's the protagonist of that actually shows up in Range of Ghosts and in in Stillies of the Sky as a much, much older woman. Um, And I wanted to write about 
I had, I had been reading about the, the Khanates and the way that the, um, the Mongols had these enormous trading empires and protected highways and basically a, a Pony Express system where they could get a rider from, you know, what is now Beijing to Istanbul in six weeks, which is an incredible feat when you think about it. Mm-hmm. That's that's the entire width of Asia. So, I mean, they, they had a pretty good mail system going. And I was thinking about what it would be like to be somebody who was on the fringes of one of those empires and, and had no long distance temporal power, but was attempting to main control, maintain control of their own realm and, and protect their own people. Um, a little like being a mouse on the ground when dinosaurs are battling all around you. So that's, that's where that initial story came from. And, the over the course of the next several years the the rest of the world kind of built itself around that um i think the second thing i wrote in the setting was uh, bone and jewel creatures which takes place hundreds of years later in a different part of the world oh no wait there's there's another story um abjure the realm which is even earlier um which is actually kind of a celtic fantasy but i was kind of trying to take the piss out of Celtic fantasy when I wrote it. I don't know if it was successful or not because it was an early work, but I tried. Huh. Um, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's sort of an Arthurian legend told from the point of view of the Morgan Le Fay character. Oh, there you go. That's cool. Um, like, <laughs> I'm going to have to look that one up. That automatically interests me. It, it's, uh, there's a link on my website. I think it's, I, I think it's, um, it was up at Coyote Wild, and I think it's still online. The, uh, so anyway, yeah. Um, I'll go through and link all the books and stories that were we've mentioned, so people can find those. Excellent. If you want the there's a there's a complete uh, on the Eternal Sky page on my website, which is www.elizabethbear.com, um, because sometimes it pays to be uncreative. Uh, if you go to the Eternal Sky page, down at the bottom, there's a, a, I think, a chronological list of all of the associated stories and novellas. Um, and then it, it, at some point or another, and, and I could probably find this because I know I put it on my blog, the first line of the novel just sort of came to me. Um, the bit about uh, ragged vultures spiraled up a cherry sky beyond the horizon, the city lay burning just popped into my head and then it's an awesome line <laughs> i i had to justify it right there had to be well okay the vultures if the vultures are here and the city is that is that far away and it's still burning then this is a pretty big battlefield and you start playing this logic game with yourself as a writer well you know the what's going on here how do i how do i justify everything how do i make it logical and make it work there's the fortuitous coincidence that tamerlane and Timujin, which was uh, Genghis Khan's uh, birth name, share the root word Temur, uh, which means iron in Mongolian. And so I, I borrowed that and I had my protagonist's name. 
And then when I was reading up, I, I found out about the Tibetan Empire because Tibet used to have a very large military empire. And I'm like, well, these guys have to be in the story or, you know, a, a society based loosely um, on these guys, even though they weren't contemporaneous with any of the any of those, the, the, the larger Khanates. And, you know, I just started building empires. <laughs> And then I put them in a box and made them fight. Um. <laughs> so you're, it sounds That's like a fun job. <laughs> it sounds like you're building them as you're writing the fiction. Is that really kind of how you get through that? Yeah, quite, quite often. I mean, I do a, I do a lot of, I do a lot of prep work. I do a lot of reading and I drew a map and cause it's a fantasy. So you've got to draw a map. Um, yes. it's in the, Master. it's in the contract. <laughs> <laughs> I asked a friend who you've probably heard of, Paul Weimer. He's yes. a big fan of yours. And I, I asked him, I said, I'm going to talk to Elizabeth freaking bear. So what, <laughs> what questions do you have that you want me to ask? And one that he came up with was um, uh, he wanted to know. So the Eternal Sky Trilogy is in a world where the Silk Road is um, instead a where the Silk Road is instead of highway, instead of a highway for whatever. <laughs> He's asking mm-hmm. why you're using the Silk Road to trade pottery instead of anything else. Sorry, I well, should have read that first. <laughs> sure. No, it's it's not just pottery. Just as the Silk Road wasn't just silk, there's that trade route or or actually complex of routes because it's not just a a single. We refer to have, refer to the Silk Road, but it wasn't just a single trade route. It was a, a braided tapestry of roads going to various places, um, and the range of stuff that they they traded back and forth, the the level of commerce that was going on across Asia and uh, parts of Africa long, long before Europeans got into this stuff, is just epic. One of the major sources of silk in Europe was the Scandinavian countries, for example. And the reason for this was because, you know, the people who are now Norwegians and Swedes and so forth got in their longboat, longboats, and during the summertime they sailed down rivers through Russia into Ukraine um, and when they got down there, they traded with people who had come. This, this is why, why Kiev is where it is. Um, they, they traded with people who had come all the way across Asia bringing silk and jewels and spices and incense and, um, and, and celadon. Green pottery was actually a major trade good, as were carvings and figurines and and uh bits of art this is also probably where there there are certain viking swords of, of the you know ninth century roughly that are made of damascus steel mm. came from the same place so basically while the while the the french and the english were busy beating each other bloody you know across the english channel Everybody else was having a, a fine time <laughs> <laughs> shipping stuff back and forth across Asia and making tons of money. Um, <laughs> this is where, where spices were coming from in the medieval period and things like 
sandalwood and frankincense and myrrh and wasn't wasn't the area where Afghanistan is now back in the Silk Road wasn't that a huge very rich kind of kingdom type area just purely because of all the goods flowing through it yeah absolutely I mean the 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 Silk Road cities were massive trading centers they were the the New York's and Hong Kong's of their day and that's I guess that's a that's a thing that is hard for people to remember close to a thousand years later so is it going to be hard for you to switch gears out of all of this history and and stuff when you when you write your your space opera your science fiction well are you going to have to cleanse your palate (laughs) yeah i've i've actually i've i've already uh hopped the tracks there because um publication as you probably know runs a year to two behind writing so I, I finished uh, Steelies of the Sky actually almost exactly a year ago. Um, oh. It was the, the end of April 2013 that I handed in the, the final draft of the book. And now, you know, I have to do interviews and try to remember what happened. Uh, <laughs> and then I wrote, and I've already written uh, my 2015 book, uh, which is uh, Care and Memory, uh, which I handed in at the end of last month. That's a, a Wild West steampunk novel starring um, heroic parlor girls and a, a oft mischaracterized historical personage who I am not allowed to name under my editor's orders. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, that sounds fantastic. And, <laughs> yes, and 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 giant sewing machine meccas and um, all sorts of of great things. And now I'm Sarah Monette and I are actually currently working very hard on the long delayed third East Crine novel, uh, An Apprentice to Elves, which will be the the direct sequel to The Tempering of Men, which was the direct sequel to A Companion to Wolves. So we're finally her 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 health is somewhat improved, and we are finally managing to get that book written and hopefully out the door after a, a three or four year delay. Wow! So and then I have to then I have to write Eternal Sky Four, and then I have to write the the first space opera. So how <laughs> long does it typically take you to write a book from the first word to handing it in? Um, typically. It takes me about three years, but not all of that is writing time. Um, Generally, what happens is I I will often write a whole bunch of notes, pages and pages and pages of notes, and and maybe a, a plot synopsis that I may or may not wind up following later, and um so if I'm selling it on uh, if I'm selling it on proposal, I'll write the first fifteen to thirty thousand words, um, the first sixth to sixth to third of the book essentially, and then it goes out and we try to sell it. Meanwhile, I'm I'm working on other things. I'm finishing up whatever I have under contract. I'm I'm working on ideas for for other books. Then basically, I'll I'll keep. Working, I'll be researching. I will be um, having bright ideas in the car when I'm in driving in traffic and have nothing to write on, uh, <laughs> <laughs> or in the shower. That's the other place. I've I've actually taken to leaving an eyeliner in my shower so I can write on the tiles. <laughs> <laughs> 
Pro That's tip. creative. <laughs> I think I think plumber. Some people use plumber's pencils. You know those yellow pencils for marking mm-hmm. on pipes and pottery. Those <laughs> those are also big. These are this pro writer tip. Everybody, you heard it here first. <laughs> keep an keep an eyeliner in your shower in a color that contrasts to your shower tiles. Uh, there you go. <laughs> um, usually when I get to the point in my, my work cycle where I'm, I'm ready to do the book or even if I'm not ready to do it, if the deadline's starting to loom, then I sit down and work on it very intensively for three to six months. Um, and that's, that's where the bulk of the first draft gets written. And then, of course, there's revisions and rewriting, and then it goes to my editor, and she has things to say about it. My agent has things to say about it, and my friends who are first readers for me have things to say about it. And then I – usually by then I've started working on something else to try to get some space, um, to get mental space, and then I'll come back and do my final draft. And that's what goes to the copy editor. Wow. It's quite the process. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I can't do – there is a lot of advice about how to write a book, and I can't follow any of it. Um, <laughs> I, I yeah. tried once. I tried once, and I broke myself so badly that I was a, a year late handing the book in. So I think the, uh, writing the, is something that everyone has to figure out their own way to do it. Yeah. But if I do it this way, I can reliably um, write a book. I can reliably finish a book every nine to twelve months. If I wow. if I do it this way, if I try to do it in any other fashion, then it just doesn't work nearly as well. Do you ever worry that you'll burn out? I I, I have burned out a couple of times, but. Um, since I'm a, a full-time writer and, and the dog expects to be fed, I kind of had to keep going anyway. And you don't have some of that the stuff, option. Yeah, I don't have that option, basically. Um, <laughs> the, uh, it's, it's amazing what a and, – and there have been books that I wrote that were just miserable to write because all I wanted to do was take a year off and, and you know, play Dragon Age until my eyes bled. Um, <laughs> The, uh, <laughs> all the secrets are coming out. Um, and, you know, there were there were books that were very very hard because I was extremely burned out. But I don't think that the reader can tell. So I, I can't. <laughs> uh, uh, Dust was was one of the really hard ones. So and and people seem to like it. So I think it came out okay. What do you do on days that it's really hard for you to get into it? How do you kind of get that extra pep? If it's a day when I absolutely have to work, um, like I have a crushing deadline or I'm about to, to go on the road and I need to and I'm going to lose some days, I basically just get an extra strong cup of coffee and sit down and make myself do it. I set myself some sort of concrete, achievable goal and I give myself permission to quit once that once that goal is accomplished. It's, you know, I will sit here for two hours without checking Twitter or fiddling with my email and I will actually attempt to write or I will write 500 words and then I can go. And that's, that's really helpful actually. Mm -hmm. As a 
female speculative fiction author and, and a female speculative fiction author that is so incredibly well known. Um, what are some of the unique challenges that you've faced in the genre as you, I mean, you had to break in somewhere and now everybody knows your name and, and that that's quite a journey that you've taken. And I'm just interested in a woman's perspective, I guess. Well, it is. I mean, there are a lot of things that are are a little bit harder um, for a woman. There are, I, I don't think it is harder for a woman to, to, break into publishing and break into science fiction publishing at this point if if only because so many of the editors are also female um where the institutional bias shows up in my experience is in the readership and and of course there are always going to be you know like a few bad apples in the industry and um you know that that's I do not mean to to minimize that in any way there there are guys who are awful um, but my general experience has not been that I ever had a hard time selling a book to a publisher because I was a girl. I have had a hard time selling books to readers because I'm a girl there are there are readers who just don't it, well it's it's harder to get reviewed if you're a woman um subright sales are harder because there are overseas markets that are very heavily male dominated there's a a fair amount of bias i think sometimes in just generally unconscious bias if the people this is like the recent thing with waterstones that they responded to actually quite quite beautifully um, where somebody pointed out that their uh, hot, you know, hot new fantasy releases table was all men, and they said, you know, you're you're right. We should fix that. Um, I think the the there's a so it's it's a little bit harder to get noticed, and it's a little bit harder to get reviewed, and there are certain readers who you're just going to have to accept that you're never going to reach because they don't read women. And I don't there, actually – I choose not to care about those guys. <laughs> there was a – this week alone I had five female authors write me asking me for review requests with a kind of subtext that said something along the lines of my agent and publisher doesn't want people to know that I'm a woman. So if you review my book, can you please make sure that you talk about me in a gender-neutral way? And it yeah. just – kind of amazes me that that's still an issue wow i i was once uh working a table for for one of my publishers at a comic-con and i was handing out books um giving away free books right the book i happened to be giving away was a was a chris moriarty uh science fiction novel that that was super hot that year and i actually had the experience of putting it into somebody's hand who said, I like hard science fiction and singularity stuff. And I said, this is perfect. You'll love it. Handed it to him. And then it's, I, I made the mistake of saying, he said something about the author. And I said, yeah, she's great. And he literally handed me the book back and says, uh, said, oh, I don't read books by women. Oh, wow. So so this is a thing that happened. But you know what? I, I don't 
I don't care about that guy. I'm never going to change his mind. I don't actually want his money. The, the, the person whose mind I want to change is the person who just hasn't thought about the fact that they're much more saturated in uh, media pushing male authors on them. And so they've heard about them more, that they're, 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 the male authors tend to get more hype. And that that person is salvageable, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, it just amazes me, I guess, that there's a sort of irony there when speculative fiction is, is a very progressive genre in a lot of ways. But it's also, as you mentioned earlier, it's diversifying. But there's still yes. such a interesting relationship with readers and female authors, despite all of that. Well, I, and and there are also some readers who are very interested in in female authors, and some. Uh, one thing I've noticed recently is the number of bloggers who've been saying, "Wow, I I've noticed that my reading list was heavily male. I think I'm going to take a year and try to read mostly women," um, which I think is awesome. Yeah, I think it's you know I I I try in my reading to read as diversely as possible, um, and to to read. You know, in English language texts written by people in English speaking countries that are not Canada, the US and England, for example. Um, you know, the, the, the largest English speaking country on the planet is is India. Oh, that's true. And and there are a lot of a lot of English language English language authors in India who write very interesting and, and wonderful stuff that just doesn't get any play here. So it it never hurts to stretch a little bit. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's important to try new things. Yes. I've totally hijacked the interview, Tim. I'm, Tim, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, that's that's sort of what I wanted to do was to give you a chance to, to ask her what you wanted. There's a, there's a couple more on number six. Maybe we should ask her. So go ahead. Okay, here's another thing regarding being... Well, I think a lot of times characters and authors kind of get pigeonholed so there's a lot of people who think if you're a female author you'll automatically write urban fantasy and there's going to be a lady on the cover of the book with the tramp stamp and lots of sex and stuff and people just assume that but you know they also I, I hear this a lot on my website where people will say or they'll email me and be surprised that a woman managed to write such a realistic male character or a woman managed to write a book that had a lot of gore and blood in it. And, and I think characters in books get pigeonholed just as much as authors do. And yours, however, never really get pigeonholed. You're, you're never like anybody else with your world building or your characters or anything like that. And I'm wondering how you managed to not fall into that kind of pigeonholing issue even if you don't try to not get pigeonholed I guess you still never really get you never really get lumped with with any other group I guess that's horribly (laughs) worded but (laughs) there you go (laughs) so I I think there are there there are two questions here one one is how I I I attempt to avoid typecasting as an author and the other is how I uh, attempt to avoid writing stereotypical characters is that 
Yes, that's much better than how I said it. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if I had if I had allowed myself to be typecast as an author early on, I, I actually might be a little more financially successful than I am now. I probably could have kept writing Jenny Casey books for for twenty years and and had a nice little um, nice little industry in those. Uh, but honestly, I I would I would have gotten bored. And I couldn't stand to ruin her life again. So, <laughs> you know, she had actually gotten to a spot where she wasn't miserable. I don't want to write another book. Um, that's also why there will probably never be a sequel to Carnival. Because uh, <laughs> I'd have to ruin some lives. Um, the I, and, and some of it is just that, you know, I, having grown up reading science fiction and fantasy um the the very strong tracking of the subgenres into really tight marketing categories is, is a relatively new thing you know it pretty much used to be that there was science fiction and fantasy and a lot of people wrote both and there there wasn't the this sort of and and here's the genre urban fantasy, and it's all going to have these similar elements. And here's the genre military science fiction, and it's all going to have these similar elements. And that's that's really a much more modern phenomenon, it feels like to me, um, which is has something to do with the, the maturity of the genre and the fact that we have these established tracks now that work can fall into. When Peter Beagle wrote... Uh, a fine and private place, there wasn't an urban fantasy market. Now it would be, you know, when, when Emma Bull wrote War for the Oaks, there wasn't a quote-unquote urban fantasy market. Um, you know, War for the Oaks, the trope codifier for modern urban fantasy. The So, but but now that, that groove is worn and it's easier for stuff to fall into it. Um, and, and I think, you know, various of my stuff can be assigned to Two subgenres. The Eternal Sky books are definitely epic fantasy, um, but I, I also have a trick I like to do where I, I swipe a plot structure from another genre. Uh, Dust is a is a gothic novel set on a generation ship. It's a love story between a girl and an evil house, which is pretty much the definition of a gothic novel. Um, <laughs> except the evil house is a generation ship, and and uh, the girl is a cyborg. Um, <laughs> the, uh, so that's, 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 you know, that's a good trick is take your plot from somewhere else and, and steal a plot from a different genre, steal a plot structure from a different genre. I write a lot of, a lot of thinly disguised caper novels also because I love caper novels. Um, <laughs> but, uh, Undertow is a, is a thinly disguised caper novel, for example. It's it's Ocean's Eleven meets Little Fuzzy. Uh, <laughs> you have the, the best uh, descriptions for stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was actually my pitch description for the book. It's it's Ocean's Eleven meets Little Fuzzy. Um, <laughs> it, so in terms of of not being stereotyped as an author, we might also call it not being commercially successful as an author. Uh, at least up to this point, the the Eternal Sky books are are doing pretty well. When, when in writing characters, I think that 
characterization is hard for me to talk about because it's it's the card I came in with. It's the thing I got for free. Uh, the, I've I've had to learn so many other things about writing. Um, I've had to learn how to write a decent sentence. I've had to learn how to structure a plot. I've had to learn how to do visual description. But characters were a thing I always kind of got. So it's hard for me to explain how I do it. But some of it is, there's a thing that bugs me in a lot of fiction where characters are too consistent. Um, they're very predictable. They're, they're, the naive farm boy is always naive. The sarcastic old soldier is always sarcastic. The cryptic wizard is always cryptic. And real people aren't like that. Real people aren't tidy like that. You know, it's, you, can, you can live with somebody for 40 years and they can still surprise you. And that's what I try to do. When I'm when I'm thinking about it, when I'm not just method acting the character, because a lot of a lot of what I do, honestly, is is uh, method acting. It's ro- it's essentially role playing. I try to get into the character's head and just write as if I were that person. Jay Lake and I share this theory that most people who are going to become successful as writers have at least one thing they do well automatically. Mm-hmm. Jay's was his flamboyant prose style. He came in with that. He didn't have to learn to do that. Um, and and mine was the characterization thing. And I just I don't know how to explain it. Um, I don't know how I learned it. <laughs> I'm sure I did learn it at some point, but I don't I don't know how. Possibly too many years of playing D and D. That's like <laughs> the best game. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a giant nerd, and I played a lot of tabletop role-playing games as a kid. Uh, Me too. (laughs) Yay! Yay, I'm a big nerd. It's great. I really appreciate you coming on the show, Elizabeth and Sarah. This was just awesome. Thank you so much for letting me um, talk to you. (laughs) So much better than Twitter. Thank you. Thank you. Visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast. (laughs) 